women often wear many hats in life. Mother, daughter, wife, ex-wife, caregiver, mom taxi, chief cook and bottle washer. In most cases, we're doing all this while holding down a full-time job or even running our own companies. It's often high pressure and most always involves stress. Welcome to Sprinting to Success, a podcast dedicated to women in high-stress professions where we'll discuss how to manage the stress at work and at home so you can feel happier, healthier, and more successful. And now, here's your host, Esme Lawrence. My name is Esme Lawrence, and welcome to Sprinting to Success podcast. Today on the show, we have Patricia Morgan. Patricia has a master's degree in humanistic and clinical psychology. She's an expert in resiliency, positive psychology, and personal development. Patricia works with organizations interested in strengthening everyday resilience. Audiences describe Patricia's message as fun, insightful, and uplifting. Her book focuses on resiliency and stress management. She received Global TV's Woman of Vision Award and the Spirit of Caps for her contribution to the Canadian speaking industry. Patricia has been married for 52 years. Patricia, welcome to Sprinting to Success podcast. I'm glad to be here. Oh, yes. Awesome. I am excited um, that you're on my show. And I must tell my audience that you are mentoring me. Um, You're giving workshops and, uh, you know, on how speaking and how to put on workshops. And uh, I feel blessed that I'm able to take your workshop next week. (laughs) Yes, exciting. It is. It's exciting. So, Patricia, where did you grow up? I grew up in rural Ontario on a poor, struggling dirt farm. Well, my father grew pigs and chickens and cattle. Awesome. Did you have a large family or was it No, there were there were four there were four children, my mom and dad, but my dad struggled a lot. I believe he had undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder. He came home from the Second World War and married my mother a month after returning from horrendous situations over there, never really talked about it, but we could hear him screaming in the middle of the night, you know, night terrors. And uh, he wasn't very successful as a farmer, so always struggling. Yeah. And how did that affect the family when he was struggling? Uh, Well, there was a lot of dysfunction going on. I have one brother who chose to have no children uh, because he was the abused the most. Um, My father's situation would erupt in anger, anger issues. I can remember him taking my head and my brother's head and smashing them together, for example. Um, yeah, that, that kind of crazy stuff that you sometimes hear. I, it's taken me years to develop compassion for my dad. Yeah. He didn't pass on to me nearly the trauma that he experienced. He uh, ran away from school, basically, when he was 13 years of age and ran off and lied about his age and started working and then ended up in the Second World War and then married my very sweet, passive mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting, all four of his children went to my mom at one point and said, Uh, why didn't you leave him? Of course, we asked that question after he died. Um, So yeah, very troubled, very troubled man. And, uh, you know, back, back in the 1940s and 50s, we didn't talk about trauma, we didn't talk about therapy, we didn't talk about personal development. Um, People soldiered on and 
my uncles and aunts would whisper, oh, he's been to the war, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, and the, and the verbal, the verbal abuse, um, he used to call mom and me the stupid females. Well, oh. <laughs> I kind of, I took that into my head, literally. You've got to be careful as an adult what you say to kids, because when adults speak, it's like God speaking. Yeah. So I decided it was stupid, and I failed grade seven, and I dropped out of high school. Mm. Um, yeah, it was only when I was 30 years old that with a lot of support from my wonderful husband, I took my first university class and was thrilled, just thrilled to pass. Yeah. And then by the time I was 40, I had the master's degree. So I'm kind of a late bloomer. Right. And I'm still get that little twinge of, am I stupid? I ran into what you would call an incompetency attack just last year in April, when I was asked by our Canadian Association of Professional Speakers local chapter to do a presentation on how to blog and when the announcement came out about my little section in the program, it said, don't miss the blogging guru, Patricia Morgan. And I went into a panic. I went, oh, my God, they'll find out that I'm not a guru. I'm not like crazy intelligent, that maybe I'm stupid. What, do I, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Yeah. And in a two-week period, I wrote an ebook on blogging. <laughs> so I still get kind of triggered now and then. But at least now I have very functional ways of defending myself and can also laugh at myself but here i am right. 72 years old and uh, i still get the odd twinge but i don't collapse in tears anymore yeah it's amazing how um what people say to you you know your um your family members your father your mother your sisters what they say to you makes such a big impact on you because i know i believe i was stupid too when i want to do something and i feel challenged that comes back it's like a negative chatter in the back of my mind goes isn't you stupid you can't do that you you can't do that you can't do that so it's really weird that um that happens doesn't matter you said you're 72 years old and it still pops up in your head and you're success you're so successful <laughs> well actually that was last year when i was 71 it popped up when i was surprised because it hadn't popped up for about 71 years so i this is what i tell my my counseling clients I say, you know, it, it's like you get a big stab. Somebody stabs you. And mm -hmm. some of us have very deep stabs and some of us have multiple minor stabs. But if you can just picture your chest with all these stabs on it. And nobody pays that attention when you're a kid, especially if you're in a, a chaotic family that's just trying to survive, you know, and you've got yeah. poverty leveled on generational wounds coming down at you it's difficult to sort it all out especially if you live in a community where there aren't good supports but what happens to those stabs those wounds is we, it's like as if we just slap a band-aid on top of the wounds and then they fester and get infected in there and anytime anybody comes close to that wound it's a big ouch yeah and then if they just if the person decides to go for counseling to take a look at their wounds, to get healed, whatever terminology you want to use. Yes, it's quite uncomfortable to peel off that Band-Aid yeah. and clean it up. That's what I, the analogy I use for therapy. You're cleaning up the wounds and really healing yourself. Yeah. But you know what? You're going to have a scar there. It's going to be part of you. Right. And there's going to be a little tender spot there. But I mean, I used to go, if a manager would come to me and say, Patricia, you made it a mistake in this report, you need to correct it. I would say, thank you for the information. 
run to the washroom, go into the cubicle and have a big cry. Yeah. That kind of reaction hasn't happened for years. So I've come a ways. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm glad you dealt with it. So what are some of the ways you end up, you know, you dealt with um, those wounds? Well, one is going for, for therapy, um, reading lots of self-help books. Self, I want to caution people about self-help books. They can certainly open your eyes. They can certainly give you some strategies to try out. Yeah. Another one of the metaphors I sometimes use with self-help books is it's like if you're deciding to, to learn to play tennis, you can get a book that tells you all about how to play tennis. And then you can take the book out onto the tennis courtyard and it gets to be awkward. You really don't know how you're standing or how you're holding your racket. And so you need somebody to mirror you, um, mm. somebody to help you try some on some different behaviors and to catch when you're moving in a way that's not working for you. So oftentimes it doesn't matter whether it's a, a legitimate psychologist, social worker, I'm a certified Canadian counselor, maybe it's a good friend, um, maybe it's going to a faith community that has a different perspective. We, we need to find for ourselves a different mirror than the one that we grew up with. Yeah. The mirror that we grew up with has become very unconscious. When we're kids, we just need adults to support us to survive. Yeah. And if we grew up in a family where we were given messages, whether that was through body language, whether that was absenteeism, whether that was verbal, sexual, or physical abuse, it takes a long time to undo the messages and experiences of those unconscious messages. Yeah. If you add, we take over, we take over the negative work for the people in our lives that were our caregivers. So my dad probably said, shut up, you stupid females, maybe twice a year. Yeah. But then I would be saying it probably 50 times in my head a day. Yeah. Wow. So that takes, that takes some significant awareness and work to do. And I congratulate you, Esme, that you are part of the I Am Stupid Club. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is... <laughs> Absolutely not true. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, Patricia, for, for a long time, it was in like, it was almost like it was in my DNA. I, um, I was afraid to do, for, to try things because I felt I was stupid and people were going to laugh at me and it was a problem. You know, you know, I've overcome that now, but, mm -hmm. um, but it took me a long time. It took me decades. Yes. Well, if you think about how many thousands of times you reinforced it in your own head, it's going to take yes. you many times to redo it. That's why I think like sometimes books provide mantras, provide positive, positive sayings that you're supposed to say over and over to yourself. Yeah. The wonder of discovering your internal world then allows you to be very targeted about your messages. So I learned to say, I know enough, I am enough. I would repeat that to myself over and over again. Yeah. Uh, the other line that I would use when I learned about uh, multiple intelligence was I would say, I have an incredibly creative intelligence. I see it demonstrated in my books, in my work with other people. Maybe I'm slower to learn concepts, but I make concepts really quite easy for people to understand. 
And I've demonstrated that through the uh, professional speaking program that's been quite successful here in Calgary for 12 years. I made the speaking industry accessible to aspiring speakers. And way back, one of the very basic things I did is I wrote on a piece of paper, I am stupid. And you can do with this with any core negative beliefs that you have. You write on a piece of paper, you know, eight and a half by 11, great big letters, I am, and then stupid or lazy or um, unlovable or whatever the negative cognition is that comes up, comes up for you. I've got, a, I actually use a list with my clients, things like, um, I don't deserve, I'm ugly, I'm damaged, I'm not good enough, I'm unlovable, I'm worthless, I'm terrible, I'm a failure, all those I am's. Yeah. Then you put the paper in front of you, maybe you look in the mirror, and I said to myself, I'm not a stupid. Yeah. That's not who I am. And I just ripped it into pieces. Yes. And, th and that was a declaration. You have to be very careful how you end your I am. And if you're a parent or a caregiver or somebody who has a place of influence in another person's life, please know that when you say you are, you are tending to speak like God, you mm -hmm. are, because the you are, you are stupid, you are lazy, you whatever, becomes the I am mm -hmm. of the other person. Yes. So my father's you are stupid became my I am stupid. Yes. Which is totally not true. Oh, definitely. Right. So I am exists in most religions, and it means the essence. Oh, interesting in my evolution that I started to notice people saying, Patricia, you are so energetic. You are creative. And then I'd brace myself for asking them to, for me to go on another committee. And I thought to myself, wow, you can get caught in the positives of people defining who you are. Right. The next time somebody said, oh, Patricia, you are amazing. You did an amazing job. I said, you know what I want to hear? I want to hear that I deserve a rest. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to define. Right. I'm going to define how I end my I am. Right. Uh, another experience I had along my journey was at a retreat where for one weekend, we did many exercises, but continually over the weekend, we would look at one another and say, who are you? And we were to end it with I am. Right. And of course, it began with the many roles we play. You know, I am a, a certified counselor. I am a mother. I am a wife. I am a friend. You know, um, all of those roles. And then it started to kind of unravel. And at the end of the weekend, I came up with uh, this. Do you, want, do you want to hear? Just ask me, Esme, who I am. Who are you? I am an individualized expression of spiritual energy called Patricia. Yes. And I could change that if I wanted. And I'm in woman form. And in 2019, I could change that. I have thoughts, but I can let go of them. 
I have dreams, I could let go of them. I have goals, I could let go of them. I have relationships, I could let go of them. And in the end, I am. You are. That is really wonderful to be able to do that, to, you know, to turn, take something and twist it in from the negative to the positive. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you have um, a beautiful daughter that you had some challenges with. Tell us about that. All right. She's 50 years old. Her name is Kelly Morgan. She works in the baby department of Toys R Us, and she has three children. We adopted Kelly when she was six years old. We were her fifth family fifth family. Yep. She was adopted before. And she lived with us for 10 very challenging years. I was an early childhood educator. I identified as I am an amazing mother. I am an early childhood educator, so I can handle children. And she um, was so much of a challenge that my she helped strip my identity. She ran off at the age of 16 and joined Satan's Choice biker gang. And mm-hmm. for 11 years, she was in and out of jail. She has 42 convictions. Her three children are fathered by different drug dealers. Two of her children live with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, Mm -hmm. One is severe and lives in a residence. Uh, He has to have two workers with him Mm -hmm. at all times. And Kelly, uh, I eventually, when she went into recovery and decided that she could trust an adult, which was me. I was the first adult she ever trusted. We took took three years. We finally acquired a diagnosis for her. And she also has the diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which means abstract thinking is difficult. That's why Toys R Us is smart. They don't put her on the cash register. She might charge $30,000 for a $30 toy. Wow. She, does, she can't handle money very well. Yeah. Dates and time are abstract. So typically whatever's happening today is her reality. Yeah. I used to think she was a chronic liar uh, because she'd say, oh, I always eat healthy. And then I, I found out that you know she ate three dozen donuts the week before. Yeah. Um, so... A lot of, I developed a lot of compassion through getting to know her really, really thoroughly. And she is a baby, she loves babies. She's got gifts. She's a baby whisperer. She's got a big heart. Uh, She'll give away her last $20 bill to somebody on the street and then not be able to buy groceries for herself and her children. Mm -hmm. So my husband and I basically manage her money and I also manage her schedule and make sure she gets to appointments and gets to work for the shifts that she does. It's been a long, long journey and the gift of all of this is she's been my main teacher. I've learned that I have no control over anybody but myself. And when you become trustworthy, when you become somebody who stays steady, then you can help somebody else. I remember after she was in recovery for so long, she turned to me and she says, hey, mom, the healthier I get, the healthier you look. So I recommend to people if they've got a strained relationship and it feels like a loved one who's in trouble has been stolen from them. And I like blaming either the addiction, the mental health issue, the depression, the situation the individual is in and call it, you've been stolen from me. Um, I'm here waiting for you to take on whatever situation it is that needs fixing. I learned lots of tips, which I eventually wrote 
co-wrote actually with Kelly in a book called Love Her As She Is, Lessons from a Daughter Stolen by Addictions. And the original manuscript was written before we knew she had brain impairment through this syndrome that she has. Yeah. So in, in that book, there's 14 ways to love unconditionally with clear boundaries. And one of them is take your frustrations to somebody you trust. Um, so that was, I ended up going seeing therapists and people in my faith community. Take your anger, uh, channel your anger. And I was so angry with what she was doing with her life. But I found young women about her age that were ready for help. So that's I ended up working with other young women for years in an empowerment program. Cherish yourself, develop your own self-interest, blame the addiction or the situation, right. um, love the relationship, catch hope, health, and goodness. Any moment I heard anything positive, I would write her a letter thanking her, and celebrating her. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm no angel. When I first started writing letters to her, I wrote her a letter once a month for 11 years. And that wow. process of writing her letter once a month for 11 years was the basis of the book. And then when I went to her with these letters and I said, I started saving letters, Kelly. I started saving them after seven years because I started to build resentment. And I thought, well, there must be other people struggling to figure out how do you love somebody who's in shootouts with the police, stealing cars, uh, heavily, wow. invo heavily involved with drugs. I can't be the only one. So maybe if I save my letters and figure this out, I could help somebody else. And that was a good incentive for me. And she looked at me and she said, Mom, those letters were supportive and loving, but they're really boring. And I said, oh, so you're going to tell me what it's like to be high when you give birth? You're going to tell me what it's like to be in prison? She said, sure. So it became quite an interesting book in the end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. But, you know, it's really nice that you, you and Kelly open up um, to the public so others can learn from your situation. So I really commend you guys for that. Thank you. Yes. She's, as I get, said again, she's my main teacher. Yes. You know, my, my mom would always say, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. <laughs> <laughs> so, so obviously, whatever situation you're in, um, you can handle it. You just have to find, you know, creative ways to do it. <laughs> Well, I think it's useful to decide to have some boundaries, too, because some people do get into compassion fatigue. Right. And I, I've ended up hiring, training, supporting, guiding workers for my grandson, and I have burned out twice. And burnout's not a pretty picture. I would rephrase that, that um, you're given opportunities to grow and stretch and maybe part of the growing and stretching is not meeting all expectations but finding out for yourself where are the edges that you can go yeah and i certainly love uh supporting and helping people my favorite quotation is by the philosopher hillel if i am not for me who will be if i'm only for me what is the point yeah that is, that is nice. <laughs> what is the point if you, you have to help others and that, that will bring you joy. And so even though um, it was such a challenging relationship with your daughter, when did you find joy in the relationship? Uh, during the, the 11 years, I wouldn't say there was uh, sparks of joy. I looked for joy at um, other places. I think there's a danger if you are expecting to find joy in a relationship with somebody who 
is lost and troubled. I think right. it's your responsibility to find joy internally, meditation, faith community, um, a passion of yours. And I, I did have a passion for helping people. So I loved working with, uh, I was women on, living on social assistance who were committed to either going back to school or getting into the workplace. And I had the honor of participating with them as a facilitator. We did individual therapy, group therapy, and then we did workshops to get them ready to go back to school or to the workforce. And that was provided a, a lot of joy for me. And I have a, a strength in creativity. So mm -hmm. uh, writing has brought me a lot of joy, creating workshops, uh, working with people that are ready to um, explore their inner world and do some inner healing. And I did a lot of my own. I aged from age about 28 to 40, I was heavily involved almost weekly with my own processes. I had a lot to heal. Mm -hmm. Some of that anger my father passed on to me, I ended up passing on to my own children with great regret. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Fortunately, they forgiven me. If only the adults in the world would come to the children, the youth, and the young adults in their lives and say, you know that time I called you an idiot, said you were useless, kicked you, whatever you did, and said, I really regret that. That wasn't about you. That was about me. I am so sorry. I wouldn't see nearly as many people in the therapy room if parents would do that. Because yeah. people are trying to figure out, am I really the idiot or am I really the bad person and um, but it takes it takes a generation to, to do the healing so that we can heal the next generation I see generational patterns so frequently and of course yeah. we have our own now I can see some of my kids it's like a mirror uh, fortunately I'm awake to see it regrettably there's many people that aren't awake to the damage they're doing. It's a pretty odd culture that we call, um, it's, it's less now, but there's still people that will call kids lazy to encourage them to be productive, call them stupid, right. and to encourage them to be intelligent. It doesn't make any sense. No. You know, it's a total opposite of what you want. And it's going to uh, it's going to crush that that person. You know, as you say, it could be for, for decades to come. Yes, actually, the new abuse, the new abuse on the front in the parenting field is overindulgence, doing too much for children, giving too much to children and not holding them accountable or responsible. Yeah. Yeah, there's research coming out on that. It doesn't make resilient children when they can't handle making mistakes. I mean, there's incredible stories of parents going to universities and complaining to professors that the marks aren't high enough. Um, That's crazy. I know. And, and uh, yeah, I say kid, kids can get a meal a week once they're 12. What are you doing doing everything for them? How is it pre yeah. preparing them for the world of entering into maturity? Yeah. Right. There's wow. a wonderful book by a colleague of mine, uh, Jean Elsie Clark, who started the, the Parent Press in the United States. And her book is How Much is Too Much? Yeah, it's a fine line. It really how much is. is. Excuse me, how much, how much is enough? Yeah. How much is enough? It's a fine line between, um, you know, giving your, your children independence, yeah. you know, and helping them out. Well, I say do not do for children 
what they can do for themselves, you're robbing them. Yeah. Wow. You're robbing them of their independence. Well, I, I bet you, Esme, you've, you've come into contact with people with disabilities, say somebody in a wheelchair. And if you try to do something for them that they can really fairly easily do for themselves, what happens if you try to help them? Well, they get, they get frustrated, don't they? Yes. Yeah, don't take yes. that away. Don't take that away from me. Yeah, exactly. and yet we're, we unconsciously are doing that for this next generation of children. Wow. So then how does a parent know um, when it's time to let go and let, their, let the, their children just be? Okay, well, every, every year, a little, so a, baby's, a baby is totally independent. By the time it's three or four, you can say, do you want orange juice or apple juice? That's a little more independence than just putting the bottle in their mouth. Yeah. Yeah. By the by, the time they're um, a teenager, um, they're capable of acting like an adult. Somewhere between the age of twelve and fifteen, they're ready to start acting like an adult with a safety net. They need really need a safety yeah. net and a sounding board and lots of guidance. But it's really useful when kids come to you at that age with problems to say, "Okay, what's your plan?" Start having them yeah. think about, oh, I got a problem where I see parents just jump in and fix it. Yeah, because it's easier and quicker. <laughs> Quick. And uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, let me backtrack a little bit. The whole happiness, positive psychology has been misunderstood. I've studied positive psychology and it's hugely misunderstood. It's people are thinking that their children should be happy all the time. That's yeah. not really a healthy state. I have, I had a brother-in-law who was mentally challenged, and he was happy all the time. Totally ignorant to the suffering in the world. So I don't mm. want my children happy about homelessness. Yeah. And I still sure. hear parents saying, "Oh, but if I say no, they'll cry." Ah, uh, oh, okay. And the problem with that is what? Yeah. What's the problem with crying? Yeah, it's like parents are addicted to having happy children. That's not necessarily a good plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. right. Um, unless you may be enlightened like the Dalai Lama and he's coming from an internal happiness. But oftentimes this desire to have happy children is spending, spending money people don't have. So 10-year-olds yeah. need a cell phone. I, I, don't, I just don't get it. Uh, so parents will put out $600 they don't have and rack up their credit card. And, and the right. same thing's happening at Christmas, the stress in families, the expectations that families have set up for themselves, I think is straining many yeah. families. Plus, just when we hear the reports about how much the average Canadian is in debt. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Obviously, we're spending more than we um, bring in. Um, so that's something that we definitely have to change. So, Patricia, mm -hmm. um, so um, you've been mentoring professional speakers in CAPS for 12 years. Tell us about that. And But first, what is CAPS? Canadian Association of Professional Speakers is a group of individuals who earn part or whole of their income by the spoken word. They either provide keynotes, workshops, trainings, or facilitation. And 
really the only thing they have in common is, is that they make money by those modalities. They could be nutritionists, lawyers, sales trainers, customer service, uh, athletes, inspirational speakers that have come climb Mount Everest or like Alvin Law have no arms. Um, so whatever they, they have a message to the world, the motivational speakers inspire us not to feel sorry for ourselves. And most of the other speakers provide a solution to a problem, such as sales mm -hmm. trainers, or maybe you're uh, teaching, I'll, I'll teach communication skills, assertiveness skills, stress management skills. And, and there's the soft arts. And then of course there's the hard arts. Uh, we have youth speakers that speak to youth about bullying, about communications. Uh, most of those speakers also do uh, partly uh, inspiration as well. So that's a membership. We have about 450 members across Canada. We have eight chapters in Canada. Calgary has the second largest chapter. In mm. effective April, there will be an online academy school put on by the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers and the Fast Track Program for Emerging Professional Speakers that I created 12 years ago is being phased out. This is its last year. And it will be online, it will be available to anybody in the world, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, if you're in Toronto, it's a huge chapter. There's a chapter in Vancouver, Montreal, Ottawa, Winnipeg, here in Calgary. Nice. So, Patricia, I know you're passionate about teaching resilience. What's resilience? Resilience is the ability to either stay steady in the face of challenge or to bounce back, to get back to being steady um, after a challenge such as adversity, trauma, uh, poor behavior of other people, maybe poor behavior of yourself, getting back on track after you make a big mistake. That's okay. Yeah. I've been shamed and and sort of hidden for a while and then come back. So it, that's what it is. And, and uh, having stress management skills and communication skills builds the muscle, also social skills, positive psychology skills, uh, increasing the self-talk in your head, um, having a strong flourishing constitution. I love the word flourish. Uh, yeah. helps us bounce back faster. So you can build resilience by building skills, uh, social skills. You have good people around you to support you to get back up on your feet. Uh, right. I use the rubber band as an analogy. You know, we, we need to be able to, to stretch and handle it, but we need to know our boundaries. We don't want to stretch so far that we can snap, crack, or break. Unlike right. a rubber band that gets thrown in the garbage, when we snap, crack, and break, if we break down, the important thing is to be able to put our hands up and say, help will you help me right there's uh you know what is it 7.5 billion of us on the planet we're not marbles we need one another so all of those aspects of positive psychology the feeling grateful the gratefulness movement uh, social intelligence emotional intelligence emotional insight stress management are all part of the package of building your resiliency so that when challenges come along you can manage them and i've had my my, my fair share, I adored my first daughter-in-law I ever had, and then she died six years after marrying my son. In the last year of her life, I spent Wednesdays by her bedside, and yeah. I, I deepened. All of my daughters helped me deepen. 
to become more of who I am. My daughter-in-law has helped me deepen. Uh, my husband has cancer at the moment. Our youngest daughter got cancer. I'm oh. so grateful that I have these skills to help me stay steady. So yes. what do I need to do for myself? That phrase of Hills, you know, if I'm not for me, who will be, I need to watch that I've got the capacity to uh, support my family and to do the work that I love to do, the more creative work. I'm, I'm a fairly decent caregiver, but where I, where I thrive is when I'm creating workshops or creating story crafting and that kind of thing in my mentoring. That really nourishes me. I found a really clear definition for myself around life purpose after reading a number of books on life purpose. And I went, oh, doesn't have to be that complicated. And so this is my definition of life purpose. Know your gifts and strengths and give what you can. And give what you can. That's beautiful. That is beautiful, Patricia. Thank so you. Patricia, you've been married for 52 years. Now what's the secret <laughs> to be married that long? <laughs> we're not we're not much different than one another, although. I've learned lots from my husband. Interestingly enough, I kissed him when I was 17. I was failing out of flunking out of grade 12 in high school. And he was in second year university. And I made an unconscious decision. If I can hang on to this guy, it's the same age as me, but he's three, three or four years ahead of me in education. Doesn't matter that I'm stupid. I just, mm. I just hang on to him. Well, unconsciously, he was looking for a way to be social because he didn't have any social skills. And I was pretty bubbly. So there we go. I fill his hole. He fills my hole. Five years yes. later, I'm an emotional flake and I call him an arrogant you-know-what. So yeah. the same qualities that attract us to one another often are the same qualities that separate us. So next month we are going for the 25th or 26th time we've lost track of a weekend marital retreat called the Banff Couples Conference. Nice. And uh, we, we could separate or many times we've got into places where it felt very painful with one another. Yeah. But we've decided to invest in our relationship. So I see our marriage as maybe six or seven different kinds of marriages, depending on the stage that we've been in. I find it fascinating that couples will go to a marriage therapist, marriage counseling once and say it didn't work, but they'll go for a year to two years to a divorce therapist. And they don't question that maybe that's a lot more investment of time, energy, pain, and money. Yeah. And the, the one session didn't work. Now, having said that, to make a marriage works takes two. And I, this is by Shelley Rose Charvet. Where there's a will, there is a way. But in relationships, yeah. it takes two wills to make the way. So marriage counseling mm. only really works if you've got two people on board wanting it to work. And I am fortunate that I have a good man that is willing to be dragged to these personal development events and participate participates to the best of his ability. Now we have, we have a culture that's made it very difficult right now for, for men they are told to be vulnerable, but then it's not okay. 
especially in the sports world. They're still, yeah. they're called a girl if they, you know, if they show emotions. And then they yeah. come home and their wife wants them to show a little vulnerability. A little tricky, a little tricky. I think it's going to take us another generation or two. I see my own son being much more transparent and vulnerable with his children. And I see many more fathers being playful, being tender, um, sh yeah. showing a tear. I never saw my father shed a tear. I fell in love with my English teacher because he wrote, he would write and read poetry and weep while he did it. It was Aww. phenomenal. I loved the man, Mr. Drew. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think that's sweet. You, you know, I mean, like we're not made of stone, so mm -hmm. we're all emotional and there's nothing wrong with um, just shedding a tear. Well, once in a while. Yeah, we still do a lot of shaming. We'll see. Oh, he he break he broke down. And I say, what are you talking about? Yeah. He wept. That's what he did. He wept. He showed us the tenderness yeah. of his heart. So we still have a lot of language that's uh, quite shaming. So to answer your question about what are my secrets for, uh, actually, it's it'll be fifty one years this year. Uh, yeah. Is when it's not working to do something different, whether that's going for a retreat, um, sitting down saying. I have a problem. I did learn to say, I have a problem. When, I, when you say to a man, we need to talk, he hears, oh, I'm a dead turkey because her verbal ability is 10 times better than mine and I'm in trouble. So I found yeah. this is just a great little tip for women. I don't mean to be sexist because there are exceptions to this rule. There are exceptions that the, the male um, is more emotionally available than the woman. Uh, these are just tendencies. But to say, I have a problem, will you help me with it? Um, classically, men have been socialized to fix things. So when you say that, it opens up an eagerness and they don't feel like they're going to get dumped on. When we say, yeah. uh, I'm really cheesed off with you, we need to talk. That's not a great way to start. Yeah, we need to talk. <laughs> it sounds serious. <laughs> so owning your, owning your own problem. I, owning problem ownership, I think, is really an amazing strategy to begin with yeah yeah so patricia mm -hmm. go back in time to the younger patricia who felt afraid what words of wisdom would you give her so she can believe in herself that's you know that's really tricky um i'm picturing her now and yeah. i would say i'm going to take you out of there i'm going to take you out of there that's just an old videotape of your life that's not who you really are you had to play a role back in that scene and i'm bringing you here where you are supported in being the best patsy that you are you are lovable you are capable and you yeah. are resilient and when you go nice. back into that old scene it's okay to keep yourself safe and play that dumb role that's okay but just know that's not who you are yes that's not who you are and to this day if i go somewhere where i don't feel emotionally safe i play the game the unconscious game of whatever the group is i don't necessarily take on the whole thing i might go home and write about it uh, if I see a little opening that somebody might be willing to sh shift their mindset, 
I might say something, but I often will keep my tender self safe and uh, play the game. It, yeah. You know, every, every organization has these unconscious rules and people st- either stress themselves out by thinking there's something wrong with them or trying to change the whole culture. And you might be able to change part of the, I, I've had, I've resigned from two different jobs where I just didn't work for me to stay. And I wrote my resignation letters. I wrote down what I saw that I thought was dysfunctional and was troubling my soul and heart. Yeah. Uh, one of those organizations said, please stay. We will make changes. The other got very angry at me. Hmm. So I think um, we either play the game if it's important to us with my own dysfunctional family. When I would go back, I would never confront my father. I would keep my own children safe, right? Uh, And contain the conversations and the interactions because there was no way he was going to become enlightened by me confronting him. Yeah. So I think that's very important for people to know. You have to check out with others. Are they, are they open to feedback and making shifts in who they are? Or are you walking into uh, starting war? Okay. So Patricia, thank you so much for sharing your time with us on Sprinting to Success podcast. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, it was fun. So ladies and gentlemen, you can learn all about Patricia in the show notes on esmelawrence.com. So please go to esmelawrence.com and sign up for my newsletter, 14 Ways to Decrease Stress. Friends, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to Sprinting to Success with your host, Esme Lawrence. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. For more information about Esme and to hear other episodes of the show, go to EsmeLawrence.com. That's E-S-M-I-E-L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E.com. The information in this podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional or medical treatment or advice. Always seek advice from your healthcare provider. provider.